So I just want to start by announcing that if you are not offended by this teaching this morning, I will be offended. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not seeking to purposely offend us, but I think there's some things that are critical to our understanding of what it means to be a part of the Jesus movement, the viral revolution that we maybe haven't thought about in all of its implications. But I want to start with inviting you to go back in your, your minds to perhaps the greatest, maybe not even perhaps, the greatest moment in entertainment history. You maybe could think of different things, different episodes, different shows. Maybe you don't involve yourself in entertainment, and that's cool too. But this was the greatest moment in entertainment history, February 3, 2001. Do you remember? Where were you? February 3, 2001. Remember that? You remember that date, right? No? Everyone here, almost everybody I think was alive on that date, which is kind of mind-boggling. I was realizing that some of our young teenage members here weren't even alive in 2001. But February 3, 2001, it not only was the day that the New England Patriots won their first of six Super Bowls, it was also the day that the single greatest halftime show was experienced. You know, of course, every Super Bowl, Super Bowl is the most watched annual event in the world, I believe. And one of the reasons for its excitement is the commercials. People watch the Super Bowl for the commercials. Others watch it for the halftime show because they, they, they bring some of the world's greatest musical acts to the halftime show. And on this particular year, there was a specific reason why this halftime show was so unbelievable and memorable. You will recall that just a few months before, five months or so before, sorry, this is February 3, 2002. I apologize. February 3, 2002. Just a few months before, on September 11, the world changed forever in a dramatic way. I was actually not in the United States at the time, but you can recall that as those, after those planes crashed into the Twin Towers, there was just hysteria and pandemonium that ensued in the United States. People didn't want to fly. People didn't want to go to public places. There was such anger and, and animosity towards the Muslim world. There was such fear that was driving so many people. And so the nation was looking for healing. There was, they were looking for comfort, and, and, and the NFL presented that opportunity. The National Football League took a week off of, of playing its game so that it could allow people to process the grief. And then, as a result, the Super Bowl was pushed back a week because the whole schedule was pushed back. And so on February 3, 2002, as the New England Patriots and the St. Louis Rams were playing, at halftime, something magical happened. As the crowds gathered there in the center of the field and the lights were dark and there was a big screen that came up behind the stage and all of a sudden, just very faintly, there was this guitar rift that started. And as that guitar rift got louder and louder, the names of all 3,000 plus people who were killed in the September 11 tragedy started going up the screen, and that guitar rift got louder and louder, and that 
And then, uh, sorry, I'm looking for my phone because I remembered I forgot to, to add something here. But as that guitar riff got louder, people started recognizing what it was. It was one of the most famous guitar riffs, and perhaps you don't even know what I mean when I say guitar riffs. But slowly, the singer came forward, who was uh, the lead singer of the band, and almost indiscernibly, you have to actually turn up the volume. I went back and looked at it on YouTube. This singer from Northern Ireland, he started speaking these words, just barely audible over the crowd. He says, oh Lord, quoting Psalm 51, oh Lord, open my lips so I might show forth thy praise. Oh Lord, open my lips so I might show forth thy praise. And then, Within a few seconds, he launched into those memorable words that so many people, perhaps not you, are familiar with. Here's a scene from that moment, um, the halftime show. My clicker, there we go. I always do this every week. I turn it off, and I don't remember to turn it back on. Here's a scene. It's not really discernible, but that's what it looked like. And then these words were, were, were sung. The first words to the, to the song, memorable words. I want to run. I want to hide. I want to tear down the walls that hold me inside. I want to reach out and touch the flame. And here's the line. Where the streets have no name. Maybe they don't seem all that significant to you, but the context of the writing of the song makes this all the more memorable, you see, because this was written by a group called U2, perhaps one of the greatest bands that has been around in the last few decades, and they are from Northern Ireland, a place that is, has been ravaged by fighting and violence and hatred just based solely on whether you are a Catholic or you are a Protestant. This song was written in the 80s, where literally there, has been such, there was such incredible fighting and violence between these two factions. And in fact, they say that in Belfast, Northern Ireland, you can know simply by where a person lives on the street they live on, whether they are Protestant or Catholic, whether they are rich or poor, whether they are educated or uneducated. This idea was brought out in such sharp relief when the lead singer, Bono, was doing humanitarian work in Ethiopia, and he noticed that none of the streets where he he was visiting had any names on them. And he thought to himself, that is perhaps why it seems like there is a lot less division and separation among the people here. And he was contrasting it to his own experience in Northern Ireland, where the streets had names, and that caused division. And so he sprawled those words as as he was flying back to Northern Ireland in a plane. He took out a barf bag and literally wrote those words on the back of a barf bag because he was describing how he had this longing to live in a place where the streets have no name. And the reason that was so resonant with all those who are watching, is because it was at this moment where Americans and the world felt like they were under attack, where, where this, this division and this separation and this hatred and this animosity was front and center. There was this, this desire within people's hearts and souls that they wanted to experience this reality where they could live, where there was no more divisions, where the streets have no names. 
You know, Bono, I, I don't think it's a coincidence, but Bono is a Christian, and he has access to what we're going to talk about today. He actually later remarked, he said, you know, we play at concerts where the streets have no name when we need God to walk through the room. Now, as I said, you might perhaps not be a fan of rock and roll. That's, you know, that's fine. (laughs) It's fine if you are. I'm not going to condemn you one way or the other. But there is within the human heart this, this desire that I think is placed there by the Holy Spirit that we could live in a context when there is no more Arabs or Americans, there's no more black, there's no more white, there's no more divisions. We can live in a place where there's streets that have no names. Bono has also picked up on this in another song he wrote. He, he longs for this day. He says, I believe in the kingdom come, then all the colors will do what? Bleed into one. There's this, there's this longing that the Holy Spirit has placed in our hearts that, however, is far too often buried beneath all of the, the, the rubble and the pain and the, and the hatred that so often we allow to take preeminence in our own hearts. This morning, and I've taken a long time to have this introduction. Some, the kids are going to come running back in here sooner than I prefer. But, uh, but this morning, we are going to continue a very critical ingredient in this series on the viral revolution. We're talking about how prophetically in Scripture, and I, I keep repeating this as an introduction every week, but prophetically, Scripture teaches us that there will be a movement, there will be a viral movement, there will be a revolution that in the end of days will rise up and the earth will be illuminated with God's glory. People will be able to see God's love in a, in a heightened way. People will be able to see that, that God is, is real and that he's active. And not everybody will get on board. Don't misunderstand me. But, but there will be this movement where people will be able to look at it and say, oh, okay, that's what God is like. And so as we've been discussing, it was launched 2,000 years ago. It was launched on that day. The revolution began 2,000 years ago on that Friday afternoon when Jesus breathed his last. And what was so revolutionary about it was that it gave a different picture of who God was, that God is the selfless, sacrificing, other-centered God. We also recognize that God operates not from force and violence and control, but God operates from, from a place of freedom, and he tries to win us by love. And these ideas were completely revolutionary. There was another ingredient here in this Jesus revolution that we have perhaps not considered to the degree that it warrants, but I want to introduce you to it this morning as we open up our scriptures, and we're going to launch into the book of Galatians, okay? We're going to try to move through this quickly because, again, I've taken too much time here at the introduction, but we're going to go to the book of Galatians, and we're going to look at Galatians chapter 2. There's a very, very fascinating little exchange that goes on here. We don't have time to develop all the whole book of Galatians or, or Paul's experience, but Paul here is writing, this is perhaps his first letter that we actually have. And so he's spelling out his understanding of, of the gospel, and yet he's not doing it in an abstract sense. Sometimes when we pick up the Bible, we just think, Paul decided one day to just sit down and to write a systematic theology of the gospel, like as though he's just trying to explain some abstract theological ideas. That is not what Paul is doing. Paul is actually writing to specific people in specific places about specific practical issues. And so often those practical issues actually 
go in a very similar direction throughout each letter that he writes. And it's, and it's in this direction that we're going to look at this morning. So we read Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 11. He's describing some things that were troubling him that were going on that he needs to, that he needs to address head on. And so he says, now when Peter had come to Antioch, of course, Peter, as we know, was one of the most important disciples of Jesus. He was one of the main three, Peter, James, and John. He was a very influential apostle. Some people believe, I don't necessarily follow this line of thought, thinking that that Peter was the first leader of the church. It actually seems to be that James, the brother of Jesus, was the first leader. But nevertheless, Peter, Paul says, when he had come to Antioch, I withstood him. I stood up to him. I withstood him to his face because he was to be what? Blamed. He was to be blamed. There was something Peter had done, and you've already read ahead, so you already know, but there was something Peter did that was troubling to Paul, and so he confronts him. He said, I was sent him to his face, for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the who? He would eat with the Gentiles. In the Greek terminology here, the word is literally ethne, from where we get the word ethnic. He's saying that Peter would eat with the different different ethnic groups. If you are not Jewish, you are a Gentile. You are an ethnic, another ethnic group. And so, so Peter would gladly eat with the, 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 the Gentiles. But notice what Paul goes on to say. But when they, that is the leaders came that were from Jerusalem, when they came, he did what? He withdrew and separated himself fearing those who were of the circumcision. Those who were of the circumcision were the Jews. They believed, of course, that it was critically important to be a part of God's covenant people, to be a part of God's covenant family, to be circumcised. And so they, when they would come into town, Peter would withdraw from the Gentiles. And so Paul goes on to say, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas... Barnabas was like Paul's main, main homie. He was his main friend. He was his main partner in ministry. He says, even Barnabas was carried away with their, what does he call it? Their hypocrisy. He's like, Peter and Barnabas and all these brothers were hypocrites. Why are they hypocrites? He goes on to write. But when, now this is the, this is the line here that is so critical. I had never seen this before a couple weeks ago. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the what? The gospel. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, in what way were they not straightforward about the truth of the gospel? He was refusing fellowship with the Gentiles. He was withdrawing from them when the Jewish brothers came. And so Paul says to Peter, you are contradicting the gospel. Check that out. What do you mean? I, I would, just by sitting at a table with people that, you know, I, if I don't sit at a table with those that are, aren't circumcised, when I don't sit at a table with the Gentiles, Paul says, yep, Peter, you are contradicting the gospel. You are making it unbelievable. You are making it unintelligible. When you refuse to cross the line, when you are supposing that Gentiles, because what they were saying is Gentiles need to be circumcised before they can sit at the table with us. You see, and we've talked about this over and over and over again, but I just need to repeat it. They had this idea that in order for people to sit at the table together, if a Jew was to sit at a table with a a non-Jew, that non-Jew would have to be circumcised first. 
in order for them to have fellowship with them, in order for them to be a part of the community, they needed to assimilate first to being Jewish. And so Paul is saying, no, 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 no. You are contradicting the gospel by doing that. You are giving a false picture of what the good news is all about by not fellowshipping with those who aren't like you. So I want you to understand, and he goes on to say, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We have to understand the implications of what Paul is trying to establish here. And perhaps one scholar has put it really, really succinctly and really well. He says in the ancient Near East, this is N.T. Wright, in the ancient Near East, the, 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 the idea of a single community across the traditional boundaries of culture, gender, and what? And ethnic and social groupings was unheard of. You couldn't see this anywhere else you went. You couldn't see it in the, in the, the cultures and the societies of Greece or Rome. You couldn't see it anywhere. This was unheard of to think that you could have one single family, one single community that was made up of people of all genders and races and cultures. This was revolutionary. He says, in fact, it is unthinkable. But there it was. A new kind of family had come into existence. These communities, small at first but growing, were an experiment in a way of being human, of being human, what? Together, that had never been tried in the world before. So one of the most revolutionary ideas that we gain from the New Testament church, what was so revolutionary about this Jesus movement is that there was no distinction between races and cultures and people. They were all invited into one family, into one giant family of God to sit at the table together. And so when Peter refused to do it, it so angered Paul that he had, to, he had to tell him off. He had to stand up to him and say, Paul, Peter, you're doing the wrong thing. You are contradicting the gospel. What I want to propose to you this morning is that this is not sort of just like a, a side issue in the whole gospel scheme. At the very heart of what it means to be gospel people, what it means to be a part of the Jesus revolution, what, at the very heart of it, implicitly included in the gospel is this attitude of anti-racism. You know, if you look at Paul's writings, most of his books are actually a discussion of this very issue. It's not like a sideshow. It's not like, oh yeah, you know, be nice to each other. If you were to go through those books, check this out. We're going to reel off just really quickly, okay? Fastening your seatbelts. Can you do that? We're going to reel off very quickly. We're going to Trace it out through Paul's writings. Check this out. We're going to start in Romans chapter 3. After all, he says, is God the God of the Jews only? He's discussing this issue. Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. He's trying to establish that, that there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Look at this in Ephesians chapter 2. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision. 
even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united, what does he say? He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that did what? Separated us. This is what he's telling to the believers in Ephesus. He goes on, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Some of us Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free, but we have all been baptized into what? One body, by one spirit, and we shall remain, we shall all share the same spirit. We're all one body. There's no separation. There's no distinction. We're all called into one family. He goes on, Colossians. Again, Colossians chapter 3. This is something he also writes in, in the book of Galatians. He says, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. There should not be this, this division based on nationality or race or culture. We are all in one family together. There's no place for this distinction based on these categories. So the idea is here that Jesus' movement is at its core an anti-racist movement. This is fundamental to its DNA. And you say, well, pastor, oh, man, I'm so glad I'm not a racist. That's not me. I don't have any problem with that. Well, you know what? It is not enough to be not racist. There's a book that I recently read that was called Stamped from the Beginning. And it is the definitive history of racism in America. And the author proposes this very interesting idea. And he writes it in a subsequent book that just came out recently. And he put it this way. He says, the opposite of racist isn't not racist. It is anti-racist. The opposite of racist isn't not racist. We say, oh, no, (laughs) I'm not a racist. Uh, Not me, you know. I have black friends. You know, we say these things. You know, or I'm married to somebody who's foreign. But the opposite of racist is not not racist. It is anti-racist. And the gospel, fundamentally, if we are to embrace it fully, makes us anti-racist. You say, well, pastor, what's the difference between not racist and anti-racist? There's a world of difference. Again, I'm going to maybe make some of us uncomfortable, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about my own journey in this. But... This is going to be a term that is probably going to be troubling the many of our ears, but almost all of us in here have been born into privilege. And so it's very easy to simply be not racist because we get to just live life without even considering it, especially in this wonderful, glorious state where, you know how what percentage of People who live in the state of Maine are Caucasian, 96%. So 
So it's very easy, very easy to just kind of coast through life. And we don't give it much thought. We just kind of can go through and say, well, it doesn't really affect me. And, you know, when we hear stories of other people's experience of racism, we say, wow, well, that's, they're just kind of overblowing it. But to be gospel people means that we are proactively, proactively, ringing the bell and saying, guys, there's things that aren't right. And there are issues that are still going on that need to be addressed. And we need to decry anything that would hint of racism. There's a quote that I came across last week. It is from the book Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. It's by Ellen White. And she pens these words quite powerfully. She says, Christ tears away the wall of partition. The self-love, that's an interesting way to describe it, isn't it? The self-love, the dividing prejudice of what? Nationality. And teaches a love for all the human family. He abolishes all, what? What does she say? What's the term she uses here? Territorial lines and artificial distinctions of society. Quite an interesting way of putting it. God has called us to be in his family and not divide ourselves between black and white and American and, and you know, foreign, European or South American. God is calling us to be in a part of his family. Now, here's the thing, though. This, this ideology is so subversive of and sometimes, especially today, it's easier to go underground with the, the racial tensions. That there are little ways that I wasn't aware of that I have, by God's grace, I'm learning to grow out of. I'll be honest with you, my experience as um, a white male was, I thought, pretty tame. Like, I, I think I had a lot of privileges just by virtue of my gender and my my race that I never really recognized. And growing up, if you had said to me, or, you know, asked me, are you a racist? I'd say, of course I'm not a racist. No, no, absolutely. I mean, I had, like, my classmates in elementary school. I was, like, one of the only white kids in the whole school. And I, you know, I, but I realized that just really subtly I would start picking up these little prejudices and I would be, in my mind, critical of different nationalities and ethnicities. And I, you know, I would say stuff in my mind like, well, I'm not a racist, but you know, why don't they just give their kids a different name, right? Like, if they just gave them a normal name, then they wouldn't have those problems. Or, well, of course the reason that there's more black people in prison is because they just commit more crimes, like, those types of things. Or I would say stuff like, oh, no, 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 I don't see color. I'm colorblind. And I understand, when I look back on it, the, the thinking behind it. But if you are a person of color, what they're hearing when we say that is, your experience is invalid. And any of these perceived racial tensions that you are talking about, they're just a figment of your imagination. So let's not make a big deal about it. But you know, 
you know what's staggering? Here's just one example. If you are a black male, there is a one in three chance that you are going to go to prison someday. If you're Latino, it's one in six chances. If you are white, it's one in 17 chances in America. I mean, you'd say, well, again, they just commit more crimes. I, I don't, the, the statistics don't bear that out. There's little things like that I might say to myself, like, I'm not a racist, but like, you know, why, are, why do black people make such a big deal about racism? It's like, we ended slavery 100 years ago. Let's just move on beyond it. You know, it's been really helpful to me is just shutting my mouth and listening. A few months ago, a friend of mine who I went to college with, he's a, he was a nice guy. He sent me this article that he had snipped out of the student newspaper that I used to write for. He said, hey, just came across this. This was written back in 2000. And he's a young man who's a person of color, and he just sent it to me. And, oh, man, my blood just boiled when I read it. This is, this is I'm, just, I'm just being open and honest here. Check out. I'm not proud of this at all. This is the headline I wrote. White men can't jump, but black men can't skate. I was trying to be funny about that. It was kind of humorous. But that's a terribly racist thing to say. Just awful. Well, there's difference in, you know, ethnic abilities and so forth. I just, I, I feel so much shame and guilt over how, how would I ever have thought that was funny? And so God has been speaking to my heart. I'm not, I'm like, I, I still, I'm still a work in progress. Like, again, this is like just completely open and vulnerable. I was talking with a, a, a Latino family a few months ago. I was sitting at the table and I was, I was saying, you know, I'm trying to figure out how, Latinos do their last name because girls often keep their former last name when they get married. And as I sat there, they were talking about their daughter. And their daughter, who was born here in the United States, I literally said to them without thinking, I said, so if your daughter marries an American, what will she do with her name? And just like that, it hit me. I was like, what am I doing? I'm implying that she's not an American. Or I'm implying that people who don't look like me and act like me, they don't talk like me, they don't speak the same language that I do, are not Americans. And I just, I literally stopped. I said, guys, I'm so sorry I said that. That was terrible for me to say. But we, we, I, I find myself saying these things, and I've, I've found myself saying at times stuff like, you know, we don't want those people coming into our country. You know, God has just been laboring and speaking to me that my citizenship belongs to the kingdom of God. My citizenship is not, I, I guess I'm an American, but I, I have no allegiance to any country in this world. My allegiance is to God's kingdom. And that's not to say I'm not going to try to be a responsible citizen, but the gospel tells me that my loyalties are to God and God alone. 
and I don't have any vested interest in protecting my country over any other country at the expense of others. Now, I know that that's probably pretty controversial, but the gospel movement, the gospel kingdom, does, when, when we understand the gospel, does not have a place for these divisions among us. You know, that, that um, halftime show was almost perfect. Almost perfect. But then at the end, Bono had to go ahead and do this. Do any of you remember this halftime show, by the way? No? Well, you guys are, 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 are straight-laced, you know? He did this right towards the end of that song. I forgot about this, but as I was looking back, he did this. And the crowd went bananas. Why would I be troubled by that as I look back on it? He was feeding into the other attitude that is pulling for us as well. He was potentially bringing healing and saying there's going to be a time where their streets have no name and there's no Americans and there's no Muslims and there's no Arabs and there's no... But then he riled up the crowd and confirmed them in their nationalism. And it just fed this unsatiable desire to have power over others. And it continued to propagate this us-versus-them mentality. Now, there's a, there's a vision that John has, Revelation. It says, after this I saw a vast crowd. He's looking up into heaven. Too great to count from every, what? Nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands and they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Every nation was gathered around there. I want to invite you this week. I want to invite you this week. This is my challenge for you, okay? This is my challenge. And next week, I'm going to stand up and ask you if you've done it. I want you to find not one, but two. Not one, but how many? Two persons of color. So, you know, someone who is not Caucasian. And I want you to ask them to tell you what it has been like to live in the United States of America as a person of color. The reason I want to tell you to ask two is because, why would I ask you to ask two? Because inevitably, inevitably, we can always find that one that says, oh, I haven't had a problem, and there's no issue here. And so it confirms our presuppositions. Look for two, and just listen. Just listen. This has been the most significant part of my journey when it comes to this issue, is when I started listening to people and not trying to, I literally, because I, I want to like push back, I just sit there and I have to listen. And I think, oh, okay. 
This is their story. This is their experience. This is their pain. This is their perception. And you can say, well, that's their perception. Well, perception is their reality. And what I've, what I've, what I've determined is that if somebody calls me a racist, I'm just going to own it. I'm, I'm not going to say, no, 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 I'm not. No, I'm not. If they perceive me to be, I'm not going to push back. And I'm going to say, how can I learn to be more anti-racist? So that's your assignment this week. Does that sound, maybe you need a couple weeks, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remind you. And if you have a hard time finding someone who's a person of color, then that's an even more troubling idea because we need to be the family of God that, 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 that surrounds everybody by his grace. So did I offend anybody? Did I find everybody? I challenge you.